Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I wonder if one day I'll run into a didunculus. I'm not even going to try to say that word. What is that? Well, it's the only living relative of the dodo bird. Oh, that would be neat. I mean, I guess that must mean that's a pretty small endangered family type of situation if there's only two relatives in a single genus. Probably. Hmm. Well, anyways, maybe someday. Yeah. I was reading an article the other day about how the only, or like the last remaining full specimen of a dodo bird was allowed to be eaten by bugs accidentally. So dodo birds really are like pretty much gone? Yeah. Actual dodo birds are extinct. Yeah. Oh, I think I was thinking of like a blue-footed booby. Oh. And I think I just mixed those up. Dodo birds are really big, right? I'm not sure. Hmm. Okay. Well, I have to check out these dodo birds in the future. Or their their living relative. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. Well, um, as Courtney said, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And we have a little bit of a setup situation. We've changed a bit. Um, oh, my dog is scratching on the door, but he's not allowed in. I visited my uncle this past weekend who gave us some advice as he has a big old recording studio. And, you know, we learned things like our microphones were upside down and, you know, what kind of microphones we actually have. So. Right. And what other equipment could be helpful for us to get? Yep. All sorts of things. And um, I've jimmy rigged like a little um, net around us of sheets to see if it will help with any of the sound in our room. We are a very high-tech studio over here. It's, I mean, it's what I could do with thumbtacks and old sheets. So we'll give it a shot. So if we sound better, please let us know. Yeah, we're working on it. We actually kind of um, learned a little bit about what EQ meant and what compression meant. And I know that Courtney's voice is a lot higher than mine, and my uncle pointed that out too. You know, the the treble and the bass is different on our voices, and our microphones are very different. She has a condenser mic, and I have a, a dynamic mic. So, I mean, who knew? Right. We Sound didn't. engineering is far more complicated yeah. than either of us thought. Yeah, totally. Um, and then I also wanted to thank our Belgian listener for last week's episode. She said I did a pretty good job pronouncing things, and... I'm going to try to pronounce her name, Marjolein Vanopen. How did I do? Let me know. Thank you for your suggestion. Mark Dutro was very interesting and very scary. Yes, thank you. Yes. All right. Well, now that we've gone through all of that, it is question time. Woohoo! Um, and it's my turn to come up with a question today. And so, um, Trisha, my question for you is... What was your very first car that you ever owned? It was a 1989 Pontiac Grand Prix. And it was fast. Awesome. What color was it? It was white. And it had, like, in the back seat, it had, um, instead of a, a third middle seat, it had, like, a console type of situation. But I still crammed several people back there anyways that person just was very uncomfortable right that probably would have been me if we were friends back then because I'm small yeah I mean sometimes that happens but I remember going to Willamette Pass to go skiing once and I took a group of boys 
uh, or young hmm. men. And um, it was me and four of them. And one of them did sit on that thing. And that was like an hour and a half drive. Yikes. So, and then they, they said they teach me to snowboard, but they didn't. They just left me at the top of the mountain. And I had to figure it out. Lame. Because there are buttholes. I mean, teenage boys. Yeah, don't ever go snowboarding with a bunch of boys if you don't know how. They're not going to help you. They don't have the patience. Just saying. <laughs> not that you're a teenager. But what was your first car? So my very first car uh, was a 1987. So one year older than I am mm-hmm. since I was born in 88. Oldsmobile Calais. I don't know what a Calais is. I know um, what an Oldsmobile is. It was basically like like Oldsmobile sort of trying to make a muscle car, but oh. it was an Oldsmobile, so mm-hmm. it wasn't cool. But it was like two doors and like it was really heavy. Yeah. And like the doors were super heavy. Was it a V6 or V8? Was I think it, it was fast? a I think it was a V6. Um I mean it wasn't super fast though cuz it was from 1987. Oh. And I was driving it in, like, 2004. <laughs> now, tell me this. Could you see over the steering wheel? Just enough. I mean, if you guys haven't seen us on Instagram, Courtney is fairly of a short stature. And I just mm-hmm. imagine in when you were 16, you were even shorter. No, I reached my maximum height by probably about 16. But, I mean, still sometimes in cars, I might be able to see over the steering wheel, but not all the way to the end of the hood. Oh, I have that problem, too, and I'm three inches taller than you so mm-hmm. I don't know yep well good question yeah um yeah. so we well Courtney picked this one so I don't know if you want to give a little intro before we just start the rundown yeah so I was hearing about this one um and saw that Anne Rule had written a book about it and we love Anne Rule um she is the Truth. she is the true crime book master mm-hmm. um and so i figured hey if it's good enough for Anne rule it's good enough for us so not intending to come right back into our backyards mm-hmm. but we are starting today with a guy who grew up right here in the state of oregon was arrested eventually right here in springfield oregon um which is where i live mm-hmm. and um did some pretty awful things all up and down the I-5 corridor, which is why Randall Brent Woodfield is known as the I-5 killer. Okay, well, so Randall Brent Woodfield was born the day after Christmas in 1950 in the town of Salem, Oregon. So that's our capital, for those of you who are not from here. His parents were Donna Jean and Walter or Jack Woodfield. Randy had two older sisters, And his parents described Randy as a very quiet and placid baby. He was almost too good and too quiet at times, and it kind of worried them. Randy turned over, crawled, and walked quicker than most babies. About a year after, or after about a year, the family moved to Corvallis, and that's just a little bit south of Salem, for a couple years, and then to a small town on the Oregon coast called Otter Rock. I've seen Otter Rock. I have as well. I mean, I think it's by Yachatsish. Newport, between like Yachts and Newport? Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or Yachts. Um, (laughs) His parents thought they had it all laid out. The daughters were good girls, and Randy would be their, quote, all-American boy. Randall was indeed a clever and good-looking kid. So Randy had different thoughts, though. Apparently his father was 
at work quite a bit, and he had some problems being in a house so full of girls. Randy did. Apparently, Randy grew to resent his sisters because they were older and got away with a lot more than he could. He couldn't accept the fact that because they were older, they were allowed to do more things. When his parents got him a babysitter, he would get very upset and would refuse to respond to them. But if his parents left him with his sisters instead, Randy would get super jealous and they would just have big fights. His sisters would tease him and tattle on him, and he felt that he got undeserved punishments. It was usually his mother that would act as a disciplinarian, and most likely that's just because his father wasn't there much. It wasn't physical punishment, but Randy would feel humiliated because he couldn't please his mother. Randy would go on to overvalue women and their responses to him and berate himself. His self-esteem would totally depend on how the woman in his life viewed him. Courtney, can you tell us your thoughts on his childhood development and how this skewed view of the world can affect Randy? Do you have any thoughts on if he has a treatable mental health condition at this point in his life? Yeah, so in the big picture of things, you know, the events of Randy's childhood are pretty normal experiences for any youngest kid in a family. You know, I have an older sister and she tattled on me and I tattled on her and I was jealous that she got to do more things and she got to stay up later than me and all that kind of thing. Um, But I don't harbor any resentment against her because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Randy's level of emotion is definitely more intense than I would expect from most kids um, experiencing these very normal things. Mm -hmm. Um, And his combined sort of adoration and at the same time resentment um, towards women for such a young age is pretty troubling. Um, But there's not really a diagnosable condition um, for kids who are just very reactive to female family members. Um, But it could probably be argued that You know, there's some sort of attachment problem that happened um, where the way he learned to relate to women was skewed in some way, but not enough to be considered like an attachment disorder. I mean, I I imagine people in his life probably just thought he was a brat. Pretty much, yeah. That's kind of the uh, how I'm looking at it. So Randy reached puberty pretty early. Per the Anne Rule book. Oh, um, I know she said we were doing an Anne Rule book, but it's called The I-5 Killer, just yes. FYI. We um, use this book mostly for our research. And per that book, Anne Rule um, said that he was very perplexed by how he like viewed sexuality. Um, and that could be because of how early he did reach puberty. He still strived to please his mother, but he found it hard to be the perfect th- the perfect son that he thought that she wanted. He validated his self-worth by what he perceived his mother thought of him and if he met her expectations. His resentment of his sisters festered as they now could drive and they had more, freezo- had more freedom that he wanted. He had conflicting thoughts. He felt men were more important than women, and yet his life was dominated by females telling him what to do. He was having overwhelming sexual feelings, but then would feel terrible guilt for these feelings. Courtney, we don't know a ton about the relationship between Randy's mother and him, but do you think she may have put a lot of pressure on Randy to be a certain way, or do you think this may have been in his mind? Let's just say that she did put a lot of pressure on Randy. What can this do to a child in the short and long run? You know, parental pressure probably did have some impact on Randy. You know, it's reported that his sisters did really well academically and socially, 
And it was just kind of expected in the family that, you know, Randy would do the same. And, you know, some kids really thrive under that, like, little bit of pressure um, and having, like, goals and expectations to meet. But others can get pretty overwhelmed, especially if they feel like the expectations placed on them by their parents feel really unattainable. Um, You know, and this can lead to things like perfectionism, anxiety, fear of making any mistakes, um, or of letting people down, and then ultimately kind of like pretty low self-esteem. So, you know, this shame and embarrassment that he was, that he had kind of receiving those consequences from his mother, or when he didn't live up to kind of what he thought she wanted him to be, um, you know, they could have been viewed through the lens of kind of like anxiety and perfectionism. Now, had he, you know, received therapy as a child, I think there's definitely a good chance that he could have learned some different patterns of thinking um, that could have really served him well in the long run. I'm sorry if you guys are hearing beeping. I'm turning my phone off now. I had Instacart um, shopping for me. (laughs) So I'm turning it off because it's just going crazy. Um, So Randy was becoming an amazing athlete and was really beginning to stand out at his Newport school. So yeah, okay, so it is right by Newport. He was a track, baseball, basketball, and football star. Even though he would get accolades for all of his accomplishments, accomplishments, he still had serious doubts about his competence and his overall masculinity. In fact, in junior high school, to relieve pressure, he started to expose himself. He knew it was not right, but he was compelled to do this act. This is a quote. Through his exhibitionism, he could not only demonstrate his sexuality, but he could get back at his mother, who seemed to demand perfection that he could not deliver. So he enjoyed doing this, and he liked the shocked or scared expressions he would get from the young girls he exposed himself to. I don't mean like little kids. I mean like his peers. Um, Courtney, tell us what's going on here. We haven't really studied an exhibitionist such as this. Is this common in this young of a boy to do this? And also, can you explain what may be occurring mentally with Randy? I would say that, you know, having fascination with your own genitals is pretty common for teen boys. Um, But actually exposing yourself to strangers is not. Um, So exhibitionism is included um, in, you know, the DSM-5 as what's called a paraphilic disorder, which is basically like a any sort of, like, deviant sexual behavior. Um, And so it's defined as, quote, recurrent and intense sexual arousal from the exposure of one's genitals to an unexpecting person, including fantasies, urges, and behaviors. And, you know, typically, interest in and experimentation with sexual behaviors is first experienced during adolescence, um, particularly with, like, paraphilias and things like that. So... It would make sense that having kind of this condition, um, Randy would start exposing himself as a teenager because that's sort of when these things are sort of discovered about oneself. Um, You know, and as for the motivation, what's going on in his mind, you know, particularly involving like proving his masculinity, Randy, you know, like many men are, was very proud of his erect penis And it served kind of as evidence, sort of, of how manly and strong he was um, when he didn't always feel that way in other aspects of his life. 
So if we're comparing him to a young Ted Bundy who didn't necessarily expose himself to others, but, you know, he used to masturbate at school in the closet. Um, there's two, there's different things going on with them, right? Like Ted just didn't care. So he did what he wanted to when he wanted to. And if that just happened to be at school, he did it at school. Randy's looking for a reaction, right? I mean, we're looking at two different teen experiences, even if they both involve touching themselves. Right. Um, and you know, Ted Bundy also, he was a voyeur, so he would, you know, peep in windows and watch. Mm -hmm. And so where they're drawing that excitement from is, is different. different. Yeah. So for like Ted, for example, the like secrecy of like, can I get away with this Mm -hmm. was sort of the draw. Whereas Randy, it's like the opposite. Yeah. It's like he wants people to pay attention. Okay. Um, so Randy was exposing himself to people all over Newport. And Newport's a pretty small town. Um, <laughs> sometimes several times in a day. So he would be, um, the books that he would be on the north side of town, expose himself, then somehow get to the other side of town, expose himself, and just kind of just kind of go crazy some days. Um, in a town this small, however, it was only a matter of time before he was caught. But when he was caught, nothing really happened. In fact, Randy's parents denied ever knowing he did these things or that he had been caught by the police. So most likely, the police just did nothing, probably just told him to stop. And maybe it wasn't even relayed to his parents. This was unfortunate, as perhaps if he had gotten help at this time, it would be the end of the story and not just the beginning. Courtney, what would be your form of treatment for someone who was a teen and a habitual flasher? Um, so the typical treatment for sex offenders is based in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it follows a similar approach to kind of like substance abuse and addiction treatment. Now, in CBT, a client like Randy would first learn to recognize the situational factors like being rejected um, and thinking errors that lead to the urges he has to expose himself. He would then learn ways to challenge these thinking errors um, with reality-based thoughts, including thoughts about like, hey, if I do this, I could get arrested. Um, And then he'd be given coping tools like relaxation or distraction um, and appropriate alternative behaviors like, you know, masturbating privately or seeking out other types of non-sexual contact with girls and women. Um, And it would kind of go like that until he was able to effectively kind of like replace the exhibition behaviors with these kind of learned coping skills. Have you worked with many kids that had this problem? No, I can't say that I have. Okay. So it's not super common? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. When Randy started to date in high school, he dated only the most popular girls. Randy would go on to continue to date girls younger than him, um, basically high school kids, um, <laughs> even when he was in his 30s. He liked them to dress nicely, not in flashy clothes. He was a good student at Newport High School and was especially versed in mathematics. He ended up being placed in advanced math classes even. He also belonged to the German club and the Rotary Club, where he was once boy of the month. He made all-state first team in football while in his junior year. He got an honorable mention in all-state basketball his senior year. 
He made the varsity team and was a sprinter on the track team. At this time, Randy stood six foot two inches tall and was about 170 pounds. He was very good looking and was apparently being looked at by many college teams for his football abilities. His passion was to play professional football. So I'm unsure what came of these scouts and their offers because Randy ended up enrolling in Treasure Valley Community College, which is in BFE, Oregon. So it's near the Idaho border. Very small towns out there. Very, very rural. Um, it may have been because there was uh, that was where one of his high school buddies decided to go to college. So maybe that's why he went there, because they became roommates. And at Treasure Valley Community College, Ray, Randy was just an average student, but he was co-captain of the varsity football team and played on the varsity basketball and weightlifting teams. He even held the freshman record in long jump on the track team at 22 feet and 6 inches. And um, I did try to see if he still held that record, but I couldn't like navigate the website to figure it out. Probably not. This was in the 70s, but... Hey. Anyways, um, it was this time in community college that Randy started to steal. It was just audio tapes from a dorm mate, but it was still something. He lied about it for a while, but eventually confessed and gave them back. He also started dating Sharon McNeil. Randy seemed to be in love with this one, this gal. Sharon, however, liked to date a lot of men. She was young. She was in college. She didn't want a serious boyfriend. Uh, it became a problem, though, and they broke up. Randy did not handle this rejection well at all. Sharon had dumped him. He thought maybe he wasn't masculine enough, and that's why and that's why she dumped him. He felt that if he had been a better lover, she would not have gone around with all those other guys at the same time that she was dating him. It is alleged that he broke into her house and destroyed her bedroom. The only thing found missing was a stuffed animal that Randy had given to Sharon. He was subsequently arrested and charged with vandalization, but was found not guilty as there was no physical evidence to link him to the crime. Randy was still exposing himself on the regular, and with this rejection and arrest, he decided it was time to move on. So he transferred to another little college, Mount Hood Community College, and that's um, north Portland area. And even after Randy had left, he still tried to contact Sharon through letters and phone calls. He did it so often, she actually had to get an unlisted phone number. So even 10 years later, Randy would reach out. Um, this time, though, with a nude photograph of himself saying, Hey, what's up? It's me, Randy. Courtney, I'm getting a total Ted Bundy vibe here again. You know, the college girl that Ted fell in love with, uh, you know, love quotation marks, that rejected him and then it all went downhill. What do you think? What's going on with Randy now? You know, it is a little reminiscent of Ted and... Of course, an oh-so-familiar tale of girl dumps boy, so boy kills girls eventually. <laughs> um, sad that we can laugh about that, but it, right. it is just what happens in our world. Um, but if we think about how much importance Randy put on having the approval of his mother in order to feel good about himself, this would be an instance where kind of this feeling was displaced onto Sharon. Um, so Sharon's rejection would feel to Randy basically as strong as if every woman in his life was rejecting him. Um, and that much pain would really be overwhelming. Yeah, that's sad because there's a lot of heartache out there and to take it that hard every time would just be really hard. So yeah. Randy would come home during summers to the Oregon coast and work, um, 
over there. So at this point, he's about 20 or 21, and he starts dating an eighth grader. Why not? And Rule speculates that maybe young girls aren't as scary to him as women his own age, but uh, still, this is ridiculous and illegal. I don't know if, you know, his parents knew, if her parents knew. I don't know if the laws were the same back then, but this would be illegal today. Courtney, thoughts? Definitely illegal, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, Back in the 70s, I don't know, maybe a little bit more accepted, but 14 is very young. Yeah. Um, But as we'll see, you know, Randy does seem to have a preference for dating younger women. Um, And I don't know if necessarily, you know, same-aged women were scary um, to Randy, but more likely they were kind of too sophisticated to fall for his come-ons, which were kind of later described as being kind of clumsy and vulgar. Um, But to a teen girl, right, who's not experienced, this type of attention would seem exciting and worldly because it was coming from this, you know, attractive older man. Yeah, I mean, I could see being, well, she's in middle school, but being in high school and then dating someone in college would be like, oh, that's so cool. Right, exactly. I mean, it's still gross. Yeah. Apparently, Tracy, who was the eighth grader, had something akin to hero worship with Randy. I don't think they slept together. It wasn't really talked about in the book, but she did say they kissed and did some heavy petting that resulted in Randy climaxing when she spent the night with him and at his parents' house when his parents were out of town. She would do almost anything for Randy, aside from actual intercourse. She even called Sharon, you know, his ex, for him because her because Sharon's parents wouldn't let her talk to Randy, so he got Tracy to call her so he could talk to her. Tracy described Randy as a happy, funny, good person. He stayed in shape, and he was real clean and fun to be with. He had a great memory, and he was sincere, not a phony. If you needed help, Randy would help you. He was always macho, and his father always wanted Randy to be something big. It seemed like he tried really hard to be what his parents wanted, but he always thought his sisters were, quote, neat and could do no wrong in his folks' eyes. Tracy said that Randy was always very concerned about what others thought of him, especially his high school friends. Courtney, I mean, does it basically just come down to this guy having no self-esteem? I'm not sure how his parents treated him, but I feel sorry for the guy if being himself isn't good enough for his parents. You know, I would say that it comes down to a concept known as a locus of control. Um, And so some people have what's called an internal locus of control, which means that they believe that their self-worth and their ability to influence their world comes from within themselves. Other people, including Randy, I believe, have what's called an external locus of control, where they believe that their self-worth and that the main influences on their life come from the outside world. Um, So because of this focus, you know, Randy would have relied more on external validation and attention to feel good about himself. And he wouldn't necessarily feel like um, the things that happened in his life were because of, like, the choices he made. I can kind of empathize with him. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I definitely rely on external validation more than I should. I'm learning to do better, but. Yeah. And, you know, myself being, I like to think of it as a recovering perfectionist. I can also get that, too, that pressure to try and live up to everybody's expectations. Mm -hmm. 
So Randy transferred to Portland State University, which wasn't like a big of a as big of a conference of university like of the sorry messing up. It's it's a bigger school than the community colleges have gone to, but it's, it's not like the university or Oregon State's in a different conference. But it's still a good place to get noticed by pro scouts for you know sports. He made average grades, but he was great on the football field as a wide receiver. He also competed in track and did well and also took classes in gymnastics, wrestling, weightlifting, and handball. Many of these things, let alone all of these things, would make me exhausted. Same. I mean, good grief. During his time at Portland State, Randy Randy got very religious. Um, he would only date Christian girls, and he hoped that through sports and religion, he could release all the bad things and be cleansed of his demons. He was still habitually flashing people in Portland and surrounding areas. I think he thought religion would help him with that. Um, he was arrested in Vancouver, Washington, just over the border of Oregon for indecent exposure. He was convicted but received a, su- a suspended sentence. Apparently, the religion was not helping. He was still exposing himself, proving he was a masculine male with what he considered exceptionally large genitals. He was arrested in Portland again on June 22, 1973 for indecent exposure, resisting an officer and eluding arrest. He was sentenced to five months in jail, which he ended up having not to do and just got a year of probation. In 1974, he was arrested again for public indecency and received five years probation and mandatory counseling. He did not do the counseling, and no one made him do it. Courtney, any thoughts? One of the other traits that goes along with having an external locus of control is having difficulty taking personal responsibility for your actions. So Randy here sees his, you know lackluster career so far and his deviant sexual behaviors as things that are like happening to him um, that are beyond his control so why would he have to or want to work on himself in therapy when something like religion was just gonna fix everything for him he wanted the easy way out kind of basically i mean i don't know that's just i know therapy's hard work Right. Therapy is hard work. And it's especially hard if you don't actually believe that you are the one that's in control of what's happening. Gotcha. It's almost like, you know, the 12 steps in a way you have to take, Mm -hmm. you have to accept your problem and and take ownership of it. Okay. Well, at the end of the 1973 football season, it happened. It actually happened. Randall Brent Woodfield was drafted in the 17th round pick by none other than the Green Bay Packers. His dream, his father's dream, even his mother's dream had come true. And that's where we're going to stop today. Yes, right where all of Randy's dreams are maybe coming true. (laughs) All right, social media time. Um, If you would like to send us an email, um, our email is addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Instagram, we are at Addicted to M Podcast. And for Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, we are at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Anything else you want to say, Courtney? Um, just as always, you know, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. All of that is always helpful. And we love to hear from you. Right. All right, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.